everybody, and welcome to the well at STSA. So happy that you joined us today here for our fifth and final installment in a series called Fighting Failure. And if you came today in need of a pick-me-up, if you came in need today of something to smile about, if you came in need today to fill your heart filled with some joy and some hope and some good stuff, you are in the right place because today is going to be the finale of the series on failure and hopefully a very uplifting message for every single person here who knows what it's like to fail and fail again and then fail again and then fail again and again and again and again and know what it's like to feel like you can never succeed. If you're just joining us here today, what we've been doing in this series for the past four weeks is talking about different ways that we respond to failure because we agree in the beginning that all of us fail. And there isn't a human being on this planet who doesn't fail. And usually what we do in churches is we talk about people who have succeeded, who have gone before us, which is really nice. But the majority of us can relate a lot better with people's failures than we can with their successes. Like when we talk about how David great, how great David was, that's nice. But when we spoke about how David failed, a little piece inside of us said, hmm, that I can relate to that. We talked about how great Elijah is, how victory he brought, said, okay, that's great. But we talked about how Elijah doubted God, little piece inside of us went, hmm, I can relate to that. So what we're seeing is how when failure strikes, it follows a certain set of patterns. All right, and the pattern is that failure usually hits us with these, this is what we discussed the last three weeks, how we oftentimes start with doubt. And the doubt, as we saw with Elijah, is about how God isn't working and God isn't with me and God isn't doing his, his job and we start to feel like God isn't holding up his end of the bargain. Maybe we'll get past doubt, but we might hit disinterest. Disinterest, we said, is like apathy. And we compare David and Solomon, who both fell into sins of the flesh and lust and the women. But Solomon said, oh, you know what? When in Rome, as the Romans. And he basically gave in, threw in the towel and said, nothing I can do about it. Marry as many women as I can. Whereas David fell, but then David got up and he fought and said, no, I have to repent from this. Then last week, we looked at a discouragement. And we looked at probably the strongest man on the planet, other than Jesus, who was St. Paul, who was stronger than anybody else. But we saw how St. Paul even said, I myself, I despaired of life, sentence of death, couldn't go on anymore. I couldn't take it, I almost lost heart. But then we saw how he picked himself up and he realized, <coughs> he realized that his discouragement, the root of it was his self-reliance. That as much as he relied on himself, as much as the discouragement was inevitable and God allowed him to be discouraged so that he would realize that his strength was in God, not in himself. That's what we looked at the past three weeks and kind of our theme that has been kind of carrying us through is that failure is not final. Failure is not what defines us. Failure doesn't define Elijah. Failure didn't define David. Failure didn't define St. Paul. It's not their failure that we remember. It's their response to failure. So we don't sit, there, sit here and condemn them for their failure. We glorify them and exalt them for their response to failure. And the same is hopefully going to be true of me and you. But today's enemy is the hardest of them all. Today's enemy, our final D, is despair. And even the word despair just kind of brings like a dun, dun, dun. Because despair, when the enemy's got you and you're reeling, despair is that knockout punch. And despair is the one that if it hits us and it hits us clean and it hits us square, that's the one that you may be down for the count. Now, when I talk about despair, there's different kinds of despair. So I want to be kind of clear which kind I'm talking about here today. Because you can have despair 
like at work, you're going to have despair. You're going to have kind of despair in your marriage. Despair just means giving up that there's any hope of fixing it. But the kind of despair I'm talking about specifically today is coming from one of two sources, which are really the same, but just different words, but just all encompassing. I'm talking about despair coming from guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. They're like evil twin stepbrothers. All right. They're both the same. I'll use the terms interchangeably. They're both the feeling of I've messed up too bad. There's no hope for me. God can't love me. God can't use me anymore. It's not about God has given up on me. And it's not about God hasn't done his part. It's about I am too far gone for God to do anything with. This kind of despair from guilt and shame is what some scholars call the Humpty Dumpty syndrome, which is all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put me back together again, which is that I've gone too far. I've sunk too low for God to do anything good for me. Despair is the most destructive of all the enemies. Despair. Like if you went to Satan's repertoire, his, like, his, 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 his cabinet of weapons, despair, that's his special one. That's his number one. And that's the one that he sets you up and sets you up and sets you up. And then he, and if he hits you with despair, coming from guilt and shame, it's just a matter of time before you are done. Let's talk a little about guilt and shame. And again, I'll use the terms interchangeably. Uh, I'm sure they have slightly different meanings, but we know what, what it means for us. How powerful is guilt? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Y'all heard him? Sherlock Holmes. One time played a prank on five of the most prominent and richest men in all of England. He did the following. He wrote him a note, an anonymous wrote. Same note to each one of them and slipped it under the door. And the note said, all is found out, flee at once. That's all he wrote. All is found out, flee at once. All five of those men left the country within 24 hours. <laughs> Guilt is a powerful thing. Guilt, when you allow it in, like you may say, I don't struggle with despair. I'm not in despair. And I say more power to you. That's great. But if you struggle with guilt or his stepbrother shame, then despair is an inevitable step that's going to happen to you. If you deal with guilt and shame long enough, despair is inevitably going to happen. So don't say, I don't deal with despair now. If you got guilt and shame attacking you, despair is inevitable. Guilt and shame are powerful because what they do is they rob you of your ability to live today. They have you always looking over your shoulder. It's exactly like driving down the street, but not looking forward, but looking in the rear view. How far are you going to get if you spend your, all your time driving looking into the rear view? You can't. You have to pull over. You can't go forward. And if you do go forward, you're probably going to run into something because you're looking in the rear view the whole time. That's what guilt does. It takes away our confidence. It takes away our ability to act in the moment. It takes away our ability to live today to the fullest and to make good decisions because we're always worried that someone's going to discover me or someone's going to find out or God's going to strike me with lightning or my wife's going to leave me or my husband's going to know the truth that I'm no good or, or my friends are all going to discover that I'm a hypocrite. We always have this feeling that we can't live today. I'll tell you a scary, something scary, and I don't know how true this is, but I read it, so I'll just say it, but I'm, I'm not vouching for this. But a psychiatrist wrote an article about guilt, and he said that 70% of people in hospital today could leave if they learned how to deal with unresolved guilt. I don't know if that number's true or not true. I don't even know how you'd measure that. But in his opinion, 70% of people in a hospital could leave today if they learned how to deal with unresolved guilt. Guilt is powerful. Guilt is 
to yesterday what worry is to tomorrow. A worthless feeling. Guilt doesn't solve yesterday any more than worry solves tomorrow. All they both do is ruin today. And the most important thing about guilt, why we are speaking against guilt today, is because God is against guilt. God himself is not pro-guilt. Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that when we are in Christ, and we have a relationship with God, and we're living a life of repentance, and we are struggling, and we are striving, and as all of you are doing, doing your best to live that life that God has planned for you, that there is no condemnation. And everything that we were taught when we were growing up is probably the opposite of this. Because somehow it sounds very spiritual to preach guilt. It sounds very spiritual. It sounds very spiritual and very holy. And many of us think that if we don't feel guilt, then we're doing something wrong. Then we're making light of sin. And probably if you have that feeling today, you probably grew up in a home or a church, or and or a church, I should say, that was very performance-based, very outside-based. And very much, if you did good, God loves you. And if you didn't do good, I had people tell me this. I've heard this with my own ears. Mother, bring her son to me and say, Father Anthony, this boy, like about her son, doing this, 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 and that. Tell him that Jesus doesn't love him if he does that. I'm like, I ain't going to say that. You say that if you want to say it. God will be upset at you if you do that. God will be angry at you. God will condemn you. I want to say, well, how about you, sister? He's only going to be angry at the kids. He's going to be angry at you too. Find me one story. Find me one story, one interaction that Jesus had with anybody on the planet where he used guilt to get them to repent. That's what we use because it's easy. Find me one time Jesus did it. When he met the Samaritan woman, did he make her feel guilty? He said to her, lady, I'm going to give you water. They make you very happy. She said, okay, great. And he said, okay, but first we need to deal with this husband issue. He didn't make her feel guilty. He showed her the grace that he has. And he said, okay, but we need to fix something. The sinful woman in John 8, caught in adultery. Caught in adultery. Like caught in the act of adultery. And they caught her and they brought her out there. What did Jesus say to her? He said, I don't condemn you. He said, but go and sin no more. But I don't condemn you. Zacchaeus, stealing money from people. Jesus, what he did with him when he found him? He threw a party. He went to a party at Zacchaeus' house. He didn't make him feel guilty. They don't love you. I don't hate your guts. He threw a party at his house. Find me one time. Even, I'll tell you one time, even Jesus, when people didn't even care to repent, he never made them feel guilty. When Jesus was hung up on that cross and the people were criticizing him and the people were making fun of him, the people were laughing at him, what'd he say to them? You're bad people. God is gonna hate you. You know what? If he'd have said that, we'd have all agreed. What did Jesus say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Guilt is not the tactic of God. Guilt is not the tactic of God. Guilt is the tactic of the enemy of God. He's the one who uses guilt, not God. Guilt is never, ever, ever from God. Like, I want to etch that in people's head. Guilt is never, ever, ever from God. Repentance is, but repentance has nothing to do with guilt. Guilt is a completely separate thing. Let me show you who uses guilt on a regular basis. Look, compare these two verses from Revelation chapter 12 and 1 John chapter 2. Talks about God and his enemy. First Revelation 12. It says, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. Don't worry about that part. This is the part I wanted. For the accuser of our brethren, 
who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Who is the accuser of our brethren who accused them day and night? Who is that accuser? Give him a name. His name is Satan. Now look at the next verse. Talking about Jesus, 1 John 2, 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Satan is accuser. Jesus is advocate. What's the difference between an accuser and an advocate? You're standing in front of court. You're standing in front of a judge. You are on trial for your life. You have a person who is your defense attorney. You have a person who is accusing you of the sin, accusing you of the guilt. The devil is the accuser. And the devil, day and night, according to the scripture, day and night says, this person, he's bad. Don't let him in heaven. This guy's bad. And he did this when he was young. And this guy did this. And this guy was that. And that girl, you don't know what that girl did. And that's the devil constantly. You're bad. And you're bad. He's trying to tell us we're bad. He's telling God that we're bad. Don't give him mercy. Don't give him grace. He's bad. He belongs to me. And then when he finishes his argument, we have an advocate, an attorney, a lawyer represent us and say, she's with me. Let her go. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our defense attorney. Jesus is not the guy making guilt. The guy making guilt is the bad guy. And too many of us on trial for our lives are taking advice from the one who is trying to condemn us and ignoring the advice of the one who is trying to free us. That makes us not very smart. We listen to the counsel of our accuser more than we listen to the counsel of our advocate, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Today, we're going to look at how to deal with despair. And our hero, saint for the day, is Peter the Apostle, the rock, the strong man of faith, the man who preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people repented and were baptized. That is every preacher man's favorite story in the Bible. That 3,000 people repented and come, like, there is no one that is stronger, that is higher. Jesus himself said, you are the rock of faith. The first one to say that you are the son of God, was to say, I'm the son of God, was you, Peter. He was the closest one to Jesus. But as we've seen the past few weeks, is there is no one who is exempt from failure. There is no human being on this planet, no matter how strong they may seem, that doesn't fall at some point in time, because all of us fall short of the glory of God. We'll pick up the story of Peter in Luke chapter 22, a famous time where he failed. And I'm sure y'all, many of you heard this story before. Luke 22, starting in verse 31. This is the final night of Christ's life on this earth, okay, before he is captured by the bad guys and killed the next day. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. That doesn't sound very good. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Just pause the story right there. We'll come back. Well, I'm just going to leave something with you. And we'll come back to it. Jesus said, I prayed for you that you would not fail. He said, I prayed that you will not fail. But then the next sentence he says, or the rest of the sentence, he says, but when you return. So I prayed that you wouldn't fail, but I'm betting something's going to happen. And when you come back, hold that thought for a little bit. We'll see how that, how that prayer works out for him. Next verse, so Peter, in typical Peter fashion, who, whose mouth worked faster than his brain, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I'll tell you what, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Peter, as always as he was, no way, Lord, I never knew you of me. I got with you. <laughs> and Jesus said, uh, okay. See that rooster over there? He's asleep now. When he wake up, 
you will have denied me three times. And we know that it didn't even take 12 hours for Jesus' prophecy to come true. We'll pick up, we'll skip down to verse 54. Having now, so at this point in time, what happened in between there, the bad guys came, they arrested Jesus, they took him away to the courtyard, he's on trial in front of Caiaphas, and then he does all this kinds of stuff in the, in the, with the Pharisees and the temple court and all this kind of stuff. And while he's arrested, here's the story, having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when, he had kindled a, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Wasn't under intense military pressure. Wasn't like the interrogation room in the James Bond movies. Wasn't any of that stuff. Sitting by the fire, servant girl. Says, you knew him, didn't you? He said, Woman, I don't know. The story continues. After a while, Another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, I do not know what you are saying. Another account of the scripture of the gospel says that he cursed and swore and said, man, I don't know nothing about this guy. Rock of faith. And immediately while he was still speaking, wouldn't you know it, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. We all know this story and we talk about it. We've heard sermons about it. But I want to I look at it from a different perspective. Here. I want to ask you this question because we're looking at it from the perspective of failure. Peter, rock of faith. Peter, the man, the strong, that the, when the soldiers came to cut the, sword, cut the ear off the bad guy, the, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never deny you. And then this happens. Emotionally. How do you think Peter felt right now? <laughs> yeah, someone's doing it like this. <laughs> exactly. How do you think Peter felt right now? If you're Peter, Jesus to you is everything. You left everything for Jesus. He's your best friend. He's your savior. He's your God. And you, of all the people, believe more than anybody else, he will stand to judge you one day. Like Peter, more than anybody else, Jesus believed in him. And Jesus like empowered him and said, Peter, I'm with you. And all the other apostles said, this guy's a bumbling idiot. And Jesus said, no, I believe him. He's going to lead the people. And he's going to be the rock of faith. And everybody who didn't believe in Peter was put down because Jesus said, no, that's my guy. And then Peter did what to Jesus? He denied him. I'm not an emotional person. But if you are an emotional person, I say the word guilt and you feel a, a knife going through your stomach when you think about the feelings of guilt. I'm not an emotional person. But I'll tell you one time, there's still something that to this day that every time I think about it. <laughs> story 
of probably my son Michael was probably I'm gonna make up a number. He was probably three or four years old, something like that. And let me preface this story by saying I'm not in any way against like ch- parents spanking their children. Like I'm, I'm, this is nothing to do with spanking children. Okay, I'm not pro or con. I believe that that some children should be spanked. Okay, and some <laughs> should be spanked more. But but I also believe that some should not. Okay, and my son Michael is one of those children who should not be spanked. He should not be. It doesn't work for him. It's not appropriate. He, it, it's not appropriate. But there was one time where Michael needed to take some kind of medicine, all right, and he wouldn't take it. He was scared of the medicine. He was scared, and he was scared. And I am confess in front of you. I got angry, and I got upset, and I lost my cool. And I started yelling at him, and I hit him. And I, I was, in my mind, you need to take the medicine. Take the medicine. But every time I think about that, and I was wrong what I did. And when I think about it, like even like, like yesterday as I was putting this in my notes, I wanted to leave this out of my notes. Because just thinking about it, I got distracted for 20 minutes. I just started feeling guilty. It's a sick feeling in my stomach. And so sick that I actually apologized to my son for it. He doesn't even remember it. But when I feel guilty about it, I go to him and say, you know, Michael, this happened when you were three and I'm sorry. And he's like, what? And I'm like, just, just say you forgive me. Okay. That feeling of guilt, of like I hurt someone who loves me so much and, and didn't do anything to me and I'm so stupid and how could I? Peter must have been feeling that times a thousand. And you know what made it worse? What's the worst part of this verse right here? What's the worst part? You, you people who struggle with guilt, what's the worst part of this? What two words? What two words? Or what, uh, yeah, three words. The Lord did what? Turned and looked. I'll tell you how I picture it. I picture it that Jesus is over there and they are beating him and they are spitting on him and they're kicking him on the ground and all this is happening over here and Peter's over here and he's like, I don't know anything. Leave me alone. I don't know the man. And then he turned and Jesus is face down on the floor, bloodied up. And he made eye contact with him. And Peter wanted to melt into the floor. There's something powerful about them eyes, isn't it? That's why when we want our kids to tell the truth, look me in the eye and tell me that. <laughs> Something powerful about the eyes. Like if Jesus would just yelled at Peter, Peter, you're being an idiot. That would have been better. Peter, you're a dum-dum. Peter, you're a bozo. That would have been easier. But he didn't. He just looked at him. What do we do when we feel guilt? How do we respond when those feelings of shame hit us? How do we respond, like I said, with me and my son, Peter and what he did? You, this is important because there are people who are amongst us here today. And if this is not you today, you thank God, but you don't, no guarantee it won't be to you tomorrow. There are people who wake up every single day feeling guilty. That I lost my virginity. God will never give me a happy relationship. I will never have success in my marriage. I will never find blessing because I had sex before marriage and God will never bless me again. There are people who as a child made a mistake, as a child, and maybe they didn't even make a mistake, but in their mind they made a mistake and their parents got divorced and they to this day live with that guilt and that shame, even though it had nothing to do with them. And it never, kids, has never anything to do with you. When mom and dad fight, it has nothing to do with you. Don't believe that lie. Any of it did have anything to do with you. You don't live with guilt and shame for the rest of your life with it. There are husbands, there are wives, there are parents who are struggling 
with something they've done to hurt one of their children years ago and think that God will never be happy with me because it's something I did. If you don't know how to deal with guilt, guilt will kill you. Guilt will kill you, literally kill you. We're going to look at two examples. We're going to look at St. Peter, one of St. Peter's closest friends. You know who one of St. Peter's closest friends who also struggled with guilt? Judas. He said, hey, wait a minute. Peter's a good guy. Judas is a bad guy. How'd they be friends? Look, don't be fooled by the end of the story on Judas. Judas started as a good guy. Judas was one of the 12. Judas was one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. And he was such a good guy that he was chosen from amongst the 12 to be the treasurer. You don't usually choose the bum to be the one who holds your wallet. You choose the one that you trust. You choose the one that you respect. You choose the one that's your confidant, that you blindly uh, trust him. And that's who Judas was. And Judas and Peter spent three years with Jesus together. So Judas and Peter became friends. Judas and Peter got to know each other, hung out at each other's house. They had meals together. They lived together. They did miracles together. Judas and Peter, side by side for three years. And then near the tail end, the same day that this happened to Peter, Judas also had an incident with guilt. But the two of them responded completely different. We are going to see how each of them responded and hopefully learn from one's mistake and one's not mistake. Judas' story, Matthew 27. Same, same time, like same day. Okay, same time as, as Peter's, but from Matthew's gospel. It says, then Judas, his betrayer. Okay, y'all know, sorry, just a little context. Judas betrayed Jesus and he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. After he did this, he got his 30 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to like 20 bucks today. He sold his master and they arrested him and they put him on trial and Judas started to feel guilt. And he said, oh no, I messed up. I did really, really, really bad. And he was an innocent man and I'm a bad person. So he came back to the people, said, take your stinking money back. I have sinned. That's the story right here. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, meaning Jesus had been condemned, he was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That part is okay. That's good. I have sinned. He returned the money. I have sinned. Then he threw down the pieces of silver and departed and went and hanged himself. Leave aside the hanged himself. We'll get to that in a second. Peter denied, felt like trash. Judas betrayed, felt like trash. I don't think, I don't think that what Peter felt and what Judas felt was all that different. I don't think what they felt was all that different. And I, I want to say that what they did wasn't all that different because we, we, can't, we can't look at Judas in an unbiased way or Peter in an unbiased way because we know how the story ends up. And we know that Judas ends that way. And we know that Peter ends that way. So we can't really assess it. But in the moment, at the time, Judas's act and Peter's act don't seem that different. Both of them denied the one who gave them everything. And both of them felt the same feeling of guilt and shame. But how they responded ultimately defines them. Because that's what we've been talking about for four weeks. That it is not your failure that defines you, but it is your response to your failure. Let's start with the bad guy so we can end on a high note. I always like to end on a high note. So let's start with the bad guy. Judas, how did he deal with guilt? By condemning himself. Judas dealt with his guilt by beating himself up, condemning himself literally. Judas said, no hope for me. I'm the worst. This can never be fixed. God can never love me. God can never accept me. You know, one time a girl came to me in confession 
And she told me she had the list. You know, when they come in with the list and you just brace yourself, okay? Here's the list, okay? And it's accordion style, okay? Like folding. So I was just listening. And there's bad stuff on that list. Bad stuff. Boom, 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 boom. And then she got to the end of that list. And she said, you know what? I feel after all that, I feel hopeless. So I said, hold on. Stop here. Let's discuss that list. And she thinks I'm going to talk about this sinner. I'm going to talk about that sinner. I'm going to talk about. I said, you know what the worst sin on that list is? And I said, when you feel hopeless, that's the worst one. And you would sit there and say, no, the other sins are bad. No, that sin of hopeless, that's the worst one. The sin of despair, that's the worst one. You know why? Why? Why is feeling hopeless the worst of all sins? Why is feeling hopeless worse than murder? Worse than adultery? Why is feeling hopeless and feeling there's no hope for me the worst sin possible? You know why? You may want to write this down if you struggle with this. Because when I am hopeless and when I say there is no hope for me, I make God a liar. I call God to his face. I say, God, you are a liar. Because everything that God has told us is that there is no limit to his mercy. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, and he has taken the handwriting of our sins and nailed that bad boy up on the cross. And he has said, though your sins be as many as dark as scarlet, I will wash you, make you whiter than snow. There is no limit to the number of times God has said, if you confess, if you repent, I will wash you, make you all new. There's no limit to it. So if you say, no, God cannot forgive this, then you are saying, God, you are a liar. And that's a bad sin. One of the people you don't want to call a liar is God. Imagine I come home. My wife isn't here today. Imagine I come home and I didn't see her all yesterday because I was out. All right, and I didn't see her today and I see her tonight by the time I get home, whatever it is. And she say, oh, you know, I miss you. You know, I ain't seen you since Friday, whatever it is. Oh, I miss you. I said, oh, by the way, you threw your towel on the floor again. And I say, oh, you know, I'm a dummy. Like, I'm sorry. You know, like, forgive me. I'm sorry. She says, okay, I forgive you. Tell me, how was your past three days? And I say, well, you know, you know what? Like, I'm really sorry about that towel thing. And I, I don't know how I missed the hook again. Like, I, I'm really sorry. She's like, you know what? No sweat. I picked it up. Like, it's not a big deal. And I'm like, okay. Um, and she says, okay, so how was, your, how was your weekend? You know, it was... Like, I just really can't get past this towel thing, okay? And she's like, it's really not that big a deal, okay? Like, after you threw it on the floor, like, I spit on it, I put it back, like, that's fine. I I'm good with it right now. I don't care anymore. But I can't get past the towel thing. And I'm like, no, you need to forgive me. She's like, I no, 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 but I want to talk about it more. Enough. I forgive you. Leave me, leave the towel thing alone. Like, I'm done with it. I want to know how your weekend was. I miss you. I want to talk to you. I want to catch up. I don't want to talk about the towel anymore. How many of us would do that to God? How many of us we do that to God? God, I've sinned. Okay, I forgive you. Tell me, how was your day? No, no, God, I'm the worst. Okay, you're the worst. Okay, but let's move on and let's get past that. <laughs> how many of us are holding on to something that God has already let go of? How many of us, God has said, uh, your sins, I will remember no more. Are you saying, okay, well, good news, God, I will remember them for you. <laughs> One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38, talk about despair and how we respond to despair. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol, 
I'm, listen to the despair and the, and, and the discouragement here. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. I mourn like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I, like, oh, play me a song on the violin right here. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Dot, dot, dot means things change right now. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. I love Isaiah 38, 17. That verse, you have cast all my sins behind your back. Behind your back. Not behind my back, behind your back. And I don't know why he wrote your back, not my back. I don't know. I'm gonna make up a reason why I think, and it works for me, so I hope it works for you too. God didn't say, take your sins and put them behind your own back. He said, take your sins, give them to me, and I put them behind my back. Why? What's the difference? Behind your back? Okay, I put them back there. You can go grab them. But God said, put them behind my back. Yeah, come and get, come and get them. You want to try to get your sins back? I put them behind my back. And I say, I forgive you. He said, no, give me back that sin. He says, no, no, it's behind my back. No, no, give me that one. I want to feel guilty about it. He says, no, no, no. Your sins, they're behind my back. You cannot get them anymore. You cannot go through me. You cannot wrestle this out of me. Your sins, they're done. I've forgiven you. But the question is, can you forgive yourself? Forgiving myself, I don't know if you agree or disagree, is usually harder than letting God forgive me. Do y'all agree with that statement? Forgiveness from God, like I don't want to make it cheap. It's not cheap. It's the most precious thing on the planet. But it usually isn't as hard as getting ourselves to, forg- to getting ourselves to forgive ourselves. God says you're forgiven. You say I can't be forgiven. I'm too bad. Who are you listening to? Who do you think is more like? I told you, your accuser saying guilty, your advocate saying innocent. Who are you listening to? Like who carries more weight in your home? The accuser or the advocate? Who carries more weight in your mind? The accuser or the advocate? You want to know what the advocate tells you? You who struggle to forgive yourself, John 3, 17. We all know John 3, 16, very famous verse. God sent his son, only begotten son, to save the world. Whoever believes him should not perish. How about John 3, 17? I think it's a verse that we all need. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus said, I'm not coming to condemn, I'm coming to save. I'm coming as a doctor. I don't come in. Doctor doesn't walk into a hospital and say, sick people, you're all bad. Get out of here. You're too sick to be here. Comes into the hospital and say, who's sick needs me the most? I'm coming to heal. And we say, no, I'm too sick to be healed. That doesn't make sense. I'm too sinful to be saved? Don't you know what salvation is? Salvation means freedom from sin. Salvation means redemption from sin. Like Jesus' job title. Jesus, what's your job? Like, hey, I'm a a consultant. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I'm a whatever. Jesus, what's your job? I'm a savior. Hey, what do they do? You know what saviors do? Saviors take sin and they break them in half. That's a cool job. Sign me up. Can I be one of your clients? Yes, you'll be one of my clients for the rest of your life. Anytime you have sin, you bring it to me. I crush it. I break it in half. I trample it down. By my death, I trample down your sin and your death. That's what I do for a living. You see, so many times, 
And this is especially the longer you've been in church, the more you are susceptible to this. So be careful with me if you've been in church for a long time. We cannot see the forest from the trees. We get so caught up in the weeds. Oh, we need to go to church and we need to follow these rules. We need to do this. We need to read this. We need to do and we get so caught up in those things that we miss the big picture. You know what the big picture is? The big picture for us is something called the gospel. And the gospel means that Jesus came down for a group of people who could not save themselves and who are, as we say in the, in the liturgical prayers and as, as said in the gospel, people who sat in darkness have now seen a great light. People who sat in darkness and were condemned to death have seen a great light because someone has come into the midst of the darkness. That's why in Christmas we sing joy to the world. The Savior has come. Because that's what happened on Christmas, is that there's a dark place right there. And many of you have dark places inside you. You have dark places here, dark places here, dark places all over. And then the Savior comes in with light. And he says, I am a Savior. And it is my number one job and responsibility to save you from your sin. <laughs> that's why we're not going with Judas. We're going with Peter. Because Peter teaches us that the proper response is to accept God's forgiveness. Now for you, letter of the law people, there's always grace and truth, right? So for you truth people, you people, ah, repent and the people have to repent. Okay, I'm not talking about repentance. And repentance is 100% true. And yes, you have to repent. You cannot just say, God, forgive me freely, uh, uh, cheaply. I understand that. But I don't think that's what people need to hear today because we talk about that a lot. So I'm not negating repentance, but if you're just trying to pull a fast one, get free forgiveness for doing nothing, that's not who I'm talking to, okay? You, you can fool me, fool anyone you want, but you can't fool God. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are struggling and striving to live a life of repentance and they're striving to live a life of holiness, but they keep on failing and they keep on feeling guilty. We need to accept God's forgiveness. Go back to Peter. Peter failed the day before Jesus died, or the day that Jesus died, okay? Jesus died on that Friday, and then Jesus rose from dead on that Sunday. And a few days later, after Jesus rose, we fast forward the story. In John chapter 21, Peter now has another encounter with Jesus. And Peter at this time is back to fishing. Okay, he's fishing at a lake, and the reason he went back to fishing, why did Peter go back to fishing? Peter had left his fishing job three years before, to be a disciple of Jesus. But now, in his own mind, I'm disqualified from being a disciple because I'm in, I, I messed up. Like, I can't go back to being a disciple, so Peter went back to being a fisherman. Well, he has an encounter with Christ, okay? Uh, well, actually, before, okay, so before we get like, the contest, we don't have to read the whole thing. So Peter's back fishing, okay, then we'll, we'll read that. So Peter's back fishing, and all of a sudden, while he's fishing, he catches nothing, okay, and he's frustrated because he hadn't caught anything, and then he hears a voice from the shore. And the voice from the shore says to him, try the right side. And he's like, what? Try the right side. And he didn't recognize who the voice is, but something happened. He heard that voice said, try the right side. So Peter said, okay, take my net. And he threw it on the right side of the boat. And he threw it on the right side of the boat. What happened? After trying to catch fish all night long, he didn't catch any. He threw that net on the right side and he caught how many fish? The Bible says 153. Why 153? I have no idea, but it's a very holy number apparently. 153 fish, net was breaking, and Peter all of a sudden, it clicked. And all the other disciples didn't know what was going on, but Peter knew. He heard the voice, he threw the net, he saw the fish, he said, that's Jesus. And Peter did what only impetuous, quick Peter always does. No time to paddle back to the shore. 
I'm jumping straight in. And he jumped straight in that water and he swam back to the shore and he fell at Jesus' feet. And when he got to Jesus, he knew it was Jesus. Jesus was making breakfast, very nice. And they had some fish for breakfast. And after they had breakfast, Jesus pulls aside Peter and he has this conversation with him. John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? What are these? The fish. Because you had like left the fish to be a disciple, now you went back to the fish. And he's telling him, you know you don't care much about these fish. And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, okay, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now, Peter, okay, put yourself in Peter's shoes. How are you feeling if you're Peter right now? You're an emotional guy. You're still struggling with that guilt, and I'm an idiot. How could I? I'm so dumb. I'm the worst person in the world. So Jesus keeps asking, do you love me? So Peter's just feeling like, you know I love you, Lord. Why do you keep asking me? So Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I don't know what happened next, but I have a guess. I think the same eyes that Peter saw when he was here and Jesus was there, that after Jesus had this conversation, Jesus looked him straight in the eye, and that eye to eye. And Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus that he was forgiven. And Peter, who had many ups and downs previous to this point, after this point, Peter was a rocket who took the church to places that was unimaginable. Nobody could have done what Peter did in the early church. Nobody, not John, none of those guys could have done what Peter did. And the reason why Peter was able to do it is because he looked Jesus in the eye, he saw forgiveness, and he accepted it. And he forgave himself, and he accepted God's forgiveness for him. Question for you now that I teased earlier. And I go back to it. Remember this verse? First verse I showed you. Remember this verse? Before any of this stuff happened, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Remember Jesus said that. Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Question for you. Was Jesus' prayer answered yes or no? Jesus said, I'm praying that your faith will not fail. And Jesus probably has a pretty good track record with his prayers. Jesus said, I pray that your faith will not fail. Okay, Jesus, you prayed that my faith will not fail. And then I denied you three times. So it would seem like your prayer was not answered, right? Because Peter's faith failed, right? Peter failed. Did Peter fail? Yes or no? Yes and no. Because what we've been saying all series long is that failure is not final when Jesus is in the story. You'd have asked him, on that Friday or that Saturday, he said, yes, I failed. You would ask him today. He said, you know, I felt like a failure for three or four days. But what I discovered is it's not your failure that defines you. It's your response to failure that defines you. <clears throat> As we wrap up this series here on failure, I don't know about you, but I speak for myself and probably a whole bunch of you. Thank God that God does not hide failure from us in his book. Like, thank God for the failures of the saints. 
thank God that he showed us the story of Elijah who messed up and, and, and David who was who messed up even more and, and, and Paul and Peter. And we thank God for these stories because usually dead people's stories only say good things. Like you read any story about any person who's dead and only says the great things they did. But God gave us their failures and I'm thankful for it because I think that the same way that God was able to make something great out of a failure like Elijah, a failure like Paul, a failure like David, and a failure like Peter, I think God can make something great out of a failure like me and like you. Because everything that they fell through, fell in, I know exactly what that feels like. The Christian life will never be mistake-free, but it can be guilt-free. And that's what I hope we all take away from this series. I'll finish you off here by just telling you all a story. True story. Another dad story. You know what? Let me tell you something, okay? Let me tell you something. For those of you who are not dads, especially you moms, okay, let me tell you. Being a mom may be tough. Being a dad is very hard. Being a dad is very hard, and I'll tell you why. If you take it seriously, okay, if you don't take it seriously, you can be a bum of a dad. You have no problem. That's fine, okay? But if you take it seriously, being a dad is the hardest job in the world because... There's a lot of verses in the Bible that say God is our father. So what we have to do is we have to be God to our children. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect. I'm not saying it that way. But what I'm saying is what we ultimately do, like it never says, call God your mother. Okay? It says call God your father. So what we ultimately do reflects on God. Whether we like it or don't like it, gentlemen, the way we raise our children, the way we treat our spouses, the way we deal with the world, our children will relate that to who God is. You, you need to know that. One thing that I struggle with is, again, this whole idea of grace and truth. This whole idea is that as a father, I need to love my kids unconditionally. But as a father, I also need to teach them to be responsible. And especially me, unconditional love, responsibility. I lean on the responsibility side probably a little bit too much. Okay, but that's okay because my wife is way over there on the unconditional love side. So we balance each other out. But sometimes when I'm by myself, I fall too much this side. Okay, then she, okay, then I come back here. All right. Just the other day, three days ago, four days ago, whatever it was, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday this past week, we, um, we, our kids were getting shots. We're traveling this summer to Kenya, okay, as a whole family for uh, 10 days, something like that. So our kids were getting uh, immunizations. And, and, and we got the shots, and Lizzie hates the shots, and she was in a bad mood, and then, then we had to take a pill the next morning, okay? I think it was typhoid or one of these funny diseases, okay? We had to take this pill. So she took the pill, and it messed her up in her stomach. We sent her off to the VBS, okay, and I went to pick her up at noon, and she threw up there, okay, and she was not feeling good about herself. That's okay, like, suck it up, Lizzie, like, we'll go home, like, we'll go to the swimming pool, like, it'll all be okay. We get home, and she wasn't herself in the car ride, and as soon as we got home, she, like, plopped on the couch, and I could tell she was a little woozy, so I'm like, oh, if, you, if, if you're woozy, like, go towards the bathroom, not towards the couch, you know what I mean, like... <laughs> But she was just tired, and she just plopped on the couch. She plopped on the couch. Five seconds later, there it goes. My lovely wife is working from home at the time, but she can't leave. Like, she, like, teaches, like, a course from home. So she's, like, in the middle of the class, so she can't leave. I've been a parent now. Michael's 10. Lizzie's 8. That's 18 combined years. I've never cleaned vomit before in my life. I'm not joking. Anytime in the past the kids have vomited, it's just been like, you know what? Just hold that thought. Mom will be home in four or five hours, like... <laughs> You think I'm joking? 
I one time sat with both of my kids in the car, in the heat. They threw up in the car. I said, we're sitting here in the driveway till mom comes home from work. <laughs> That's how it's going to be. I didn't say I'm a good, <laughs> I'm an honest husband. I'm not necessarily the best, but I, 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 I'm honest, okay? I know my weaknesses and my strengths. <laughs> Lizzie threw up right there. So I said, that's going to be okay. Mom's going to have a break at some point in time. Like, she's going to clean that thing up. But then I said, if you feel woozy again, go to the bathroom. It's not far. It's from here to there. If you just feel a hint of woozy, go to the bathroom. You're sitting here on the floor. You can sit there on the floor. Like, that's fine. I know. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's right. But it's honest. Okay, Dad, sure, Dad. I want to watch TV. Okay, watch TV. Ten minutes later, I hear... Lizzie! And I screamed. And I grabbed her. And she's like in the middle of the... I grabbed her. And I like rushed her to the thing. And she left a little trail all the way right there. And this is the part that I'm confessing. And I started to yell at her. And I told you, Lizzie, that if you feel sick, go to the bathroom. And why don't you sit in the bathroom? And what's wrong with you? And I was too tough. I was tough. And I'll be honest... I was, I, was, I was mean. I was mean. I'm honest. Then I saw her little face. Lizzie never shows emotion. Okay? She's got that, like, from me. Okay? I saw her little face. She'd thrown up three times. Something felt bad. You know when the kids just, ugh. You know that look? Parents, you know, like, ugh. They just feel like the worst person. She's got throw up on herself. And I started to feel guilty. Walked out, gathered myself, and I went in there. And I wanted to give her a hug, but she was, so I cleaned her and then. <laughs> I tried, but I mean, so, you know, and I cleaned her. I said, that's okay, Lizzie. I said, that's okay. It's okay. And I could tell she'd like, she felt bad about herself, and she felt bad that I yelled at her, and she felt bad that she let me down, and she felt bad, she felt bad. I said, it's okay, Lizzie. It'll be okay. Just come here. And I gave her a hug. I said, you want anything? And she was like, in the throw up. I said, you know what? And I did something I hadn't done in 18 years. I said, don't worry. I'll clean it up. And I cleaned up throw up. Now, with that said, it was literally like just a couple drops. But to me, that was like <laughs> husband of the year. You know what I mean? And I told her, I said, Lizzie, if you throw up on yourself 100 times, I'll still love you. I never stop loving you. And nothing you do can make me love you any more or any less. And those words may not mean a lot to you, but if you have a child, you know what it means. And I want you to know that that picture is exactly how God deals with us. And many of us, man, we throw up all over the place. We throw up on ourselves, we throw up on our family, we throw up on our career. Like we throw up all... And it is easy to think that God will look at us and be like, dirty, get him out. But I will say this to myself. I made a commitment in February 2007. That's when Lizzie was born. I made a commitment in February 2011, or 2007. <laughs> February 2007. <laughs> that no matter what she did, I would love her forever. I made that commitment. That there's nothing that she could do to get me to stop loving her. And I think God made the same commitment when he created each one of us. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Nothing. I don't care if you vomited on yourself. I don't care if you vomited all over the house. There's nothing you can do 
Because what the scripture teaches us is that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I hope, like if I leave y'all, we started this series talking about the prodigal son, how he failed, how he came home to father. I want to tell you that no matter what your failure is, your father is his arms open to you today and says, come home. Come home. Whatever it is, come back. You threw up on yourself? It's okay, come back. You made a mistake? Come back. No matter what your failure. Like God is saying, just like I'm saying to my daughter, I don't love you because of you. I love you because of me. You have my last name at the end of Lizzie. You have my last name, right? So therefore I love you. I don't love you because of you. I love you because of me. Because I created you. Not I created her, but you know what I'm saying. Because I brought you into this world. I will love you forever. And God says the same thing with every one of us. I brought you into this world. I've made a commitment that I will love you no matter what it is. And nothing you do will make me love you more or less. Nothing. So just come back to me. And we'll clean it up and we'll make it better. Because it's not your failure that defines you. It's your response to failure. I'm going to invite Dina to come back up here on stage. Okay? And maybe what we can do is we can stand up together. All right? We'll sing a song here together. And end in prayer. If you know the tune, join in, please. If you don't, we can just close our eyes and pray Psalm 13 together. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long? Must I wrestle with my thoughts And every day have sorrow in my heart How long will my enemy Triumph over me Look on me and answer O Lord, my God Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for this chance to stand in front of you, and we thank you for your never-ending love. Thank you, Lord, that your grace and your mercy and your compassion is more than the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. 
Thank you, Lord, that you clean up all of our messes. You do it with a smile. You never condemn us. You never make us feel guilty or shame. Lord, today we repent of anything we have done to hurt your heart. Any sins that we have done, Lord, that we haven't repented for. Today we repent for them, Lord. We ask you to forgive us. And we ask you knowing that is your greatest desire to forgive us. Like we're not begging you for something that you are like forced to give to us. You're the one who's ready to shower us with grace and with mercy and shower us with all the good things like the father did to that prodigal son, like you did with your disciple Peter. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stop listening to the accuser and his horrible voice, which makes us feel so small and so little and so worthless. And that you'd help us to be in tune with your sweet voice, calling us, reaching out to us, telling us how much you love us. Pray, Lord, that you would really help us not to, to, to let failure defeat us, but that we would be strong and mighty in you and that we would never let failure get the best of us, but we would walk out of here and say that failure will not define us. It will be our response to our failure and that no shortcoming or no weakness will ever stop you from working in our life because we love you and we repent of our sins and we trust in you, Lord, and we'll always rely on you. Thank you, Lord, for this, for this series and thank you for not hiding the, the, the sins of your saints from us. Help each one of us to leave here feeling empowered and ready to go out and fight this world in your strength. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, with the prayers and intercessions of all your saints. Hear us as we pray together thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.